Welcome to Episode 6 of Emergency Medicine Operations Management, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. Christopher Camarada, an emergency physician at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, interviews Dr. Fred Murarki, an emergency physician at UPMC Hammett in Erie, Pennsylvania. They will discuss advanced directives in emergency medicine. Hello, this is Chris Camerata. I'll be interviewing Dr. Ferdinando Murarki today about uh, advanced directives, DNR, and POLST. Dr. Murarki is the medical director at UPMC Hammett and principal investigator of Triad. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Camerata. And I guess to start this off, uh, you know, we often hear of living wills, DNR orders, post documents, and what they mean in emergency medicine versus not meaning anything in emergency medicine. And oftentimes you hear about patients being over-resuscitated in emergency departments. So I want to kind of clarify that up here today, kind of go over some of this information and, but, you know, let's just talk about the issues. Well, that sounds great. So Dr. Murky, let's just start with this. What is all the fuss about? Just talk to me a little bit about advanced directive DNR orders and pulse and what all the fuss is about. So if, if, if you think about this, we often hear of patients being over-resuscitated in emergency medicine. The ER doc did this or the ER doc did that. They intubated this patient or that patient. But what people don't realize is that we often don't have all the information involved and we really don't know if people are terminal or not when we're trying to do this and resuscitate a patient. And what they also don't know is that this has really become a nationwide patient safety concern. And these are medical errors as far as over-resuscitation and under-resuscitation, just as if someone had a medication error. These are medical errors, and that needs to be addressed in that same format so we can help bring some resolution to this whole process. Because this process is a completely unregulated process, and it's about to get really ramped up or amped up because the Institute of Medicine report that just showed that we're spending $170 billion right now on end-of-life care, and that's projected to hit $350 billion in less than five years. So lots of people are focused on how to not spend money here. So I think it would be helpful uh, for everyone listening if you could just define, you know, what are they? What is a living will or advanced directive versus, say, a DNR or a post? So let's start with the most basic one or the living will, which is also called an advanced directive. And the most common advanced directive is the living will. Now, living wills are documents, they're legal documents, and they essentially come into play when a patient can't long, can no longer make decisions for themselves or they lost their decision-making capacity and have triggers in them, okay? Basically, they have to not have decision-making capacity and they have to have met a terminal illness or an end-stage medical condition or a persistent vegetative or persistent unconscious state. Now, a common misconception with living wills is, is that when they're present, you should be following them. That is not true. And that's what we need the media to be really clear about and that we don't follow living wills just because they exist. We're supposed to follow living wills in the course of management of patient care when that document becomes triggered. Again, meaning it's become inactive by the terms in the document, such as losing your decision-making capacity and having that end-stage medical condition or persistent vegetative state. Now, do not resuscitate orders are something completely different. Those are medical orders, but they do have state statutes and some legal support in, um, in process and so on. 
But those are medical orders, and it's a very narrowed, focused order, and it's an immediately actionable order in that you're not supposed to treat a patient when they're found in cardiac arrest, meaning they're dead, not critically ill. We're not supposed to pay attention to these orders or documents when someone's critically ill, other than to have a conversation to clarify the goals of treatment for that particular patient. So again, DNR orders are something different. They're activated medical orders, and you follow them only when the patient's in cardiac arrest. Now, pulse documents or pulse orders are these new documents. Well, they're not so new. They've actually been around since the late, late 1990s, but they've recently got lots of press and are coming across the nation. It's such a clip right now, and every state is trying to enact a pulse initiative because they're all looking to figure out what to do with end-of-life care. You, know, you have a resource issue, you have a patient wishes issues, and you have an expenditure issue that they're all trying to tackle and get control of, and lots of people are turning to pulse. Now, pulse is a physician's order is how it's initially started out, the physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. And depending on the state you're in, they could be a physician's order or a provider order. And when I say provider order, it's so that advanced practice providers such as nurse practitioners and physician's assistants could actually be involved in the decision and consent-making process and the inaction process of those documents or orders. Now, those are immediately actionable order sets. Those are medical order sets that encompass care when you're in cardiac arrest or when not in cardiac arrest. Now, they're often supposed to be completed by a physician, right, because it's a physician or provider's order. However, there are multiple non-medical personnel that get involved in the creation of those orders and order sets, and then they get signed by a provider or the physician and become immediately actionable. Now, those documents themselves, again, are physician's orders. They're not advanced directives. They're not a living will. They're a medical order set. So... Uh just to clarify, how would you obtain each of these, say a living will versus say a post order set? So living wills come by many different ways. You can get one from the internet. You can get one by seeing an attorney. You can create one yourself and call it an advanced directive as long as it meets the state notoriety uh, agreements or regulations. DNR orders come by the hand of a physician or a medical provider, meaning a physician in your institution or a medical provider as deemed appropriately credentialed by your institution, such as that nurse practitioner or advanced practice provider, uh, physician assistant, could also write for the DNR order itself. Pulse documents are ones that come by way of, again, it should be created by a physician in the process. However, across the states, there are multiple processes in, in the way these documents are created. So they're often created by non-medical personnel and then signed into action by a physician. Now, that physician could be involved in the care intimately or not. That physician technically could just be signing the documents based off of their associate's work as far as a social worker or someone who helped create the document and then provided it to a physician or a provider to sign for its inaction. So talk to me about the regulations that exist out there. What regulations do we have in regards to these, uh, these forms? So if you think about it, there's really no regulation. There's a pulse process or a pulse active group that actually is to oversee the process and, and provide resources, but they don't really have the ability to regulate what a state can do. So for example, the state of Maryland has essentially mandated that every patient who gets admitted to the hospital um, have a pulse document or their most document for lack of a better term, and that's their medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. Now, in that setting, what happens is Pulse can essentially denounce them 
from, you know, being an approved pulse process, but that really doesn't do anything to their process because their process is still up active and enrolling patients, so to speak, in that process. So there really is no regulation over the process. There's no regulation to say, you know, what the the expected error rates are involved in end-of-life care as far as over-resuscitation, under-resuscitation. What's an acceptable error rate? Because, you know, you might think that a 5% error rate is acceptable, but if you're one of that 5%, you might not find it to be acceptable. So, and then there's issues as far as safety that we've never even looked at. We've never looked at the appropriateness of DNR orders or the accuracy of DNR orders. And I can show to, say that our triad three research has shown that there is a, a, a misunderstanding of documents as far as living will documents being equated with DNR orders and DNR orders being equated with end of life care orders. And we've also seen from our, our experience that living wills are getting misinterpreted as meaning a certain format on a post document. And it's not that format. What often needs to happen in these documents or situations is a conversation to actually clarify a patient's goals of care to kind of figure out what their true code status is. Are they a DNR? Are they not a DNR? Because you could have a living will that declines life-saving care, but still be a full code. So, uh, you know, before we get into your, your research, um, one of the things that you've touched on is the post form needs to be uh, enacted by a physician or advanced practitioner. So as an emergency physician, uh, you know, is this something that I should be doing or, or really should it be somebody with an established relationship with the patient? So if you look at how the process is going, it's, it's a variable practice across the country. Some emergency physicians do it, others do not. You know, if you think about what we have as far as an amount of time to actually be able to feel, to have a, a patient's family or their family member feel comfortable with us trying to actually sit down and create an advanced care plan with a patient, there's not often enough time in an emergency department to do that. But people seem to think that this, this could be done so quickly and haphazardly that, that it should be done by emergency department physicians when they admit patients to the hospital. And it really needs to be done in a setting where people can have a discussion and have informed consent and maybe go through some degree of a checklist to make sure that it's actually appropriate for that particular patient, rather than thinking we can knee jerk or cookbook this for every particular patient that gets admitted to a hospital. That's a good point. So let's touch on your research with the triad studies. Uh, if you could walk us through what exactly the triad study looked at and uh, what you found with your research. So if, as far as TRIAD itself, TRIAD stands for the Realistic Interpretation of Advanced Directives. And it's a number of studies that we've published now. They're all unbiased, they're unfunded, and they essentially have been based off of the three premises that, that I've always, you know, been uncovered every time I've investigated a case. And oftentimes, you know, the documents lack informed consent on the part of the patient. They lack individualization for a patient's particular medical condition. And they've often resulted in misinterpretation of DNR orders or do not treat orders on the part of the patient because they have those documents. So that essentially that threefold episode there just essentially has helped us form the triad, which we named all of our research studies. Now this is survey research. So there's always the question of whether or not survey research is appropriate or can really depict what would happen in actual clinical practice. But survey research is intended to raise questions and answer questions as far as you know, is something understood. And if you take a look at this, what, what ends up happening in all the research we've done so far is that there's this mass misunderstanding 
that living wills equate with do not resuscitate orders, and that do not resuscitate orders equate with end of life care orders. And then when we looked at this also in, in further research, and what we just published with our triad six and seven studies, looking at pulse understanding in emergency medicine physicians and pre-hospital providers as well, we see similar misunderstandings that people have misunderstandings of when to utilize these documents or the understanding of these documents in clinical situations where people are critically ill. So at times I've heard you talk about a checklist or pauses. Can you touch on that and how that would help this process? So similar to what we've done in, in surgical history, is, as far as creating, you know, the surgical pause or the procedural pause, and the checklist that go into that process, it would make sense that anytime we came across a do not resuscitate order or a pulse document or so on, especially that we know there's some errors in creation of documents and orders, that we would sit down and maybe have a 30 second conversation with the patient to individualize the, the, or clarify their goal of care. And when we take a look at what, what we mean by that, you know, in the checklist that we've created, the ABCDEs or ABCDs, you know, when you look at cardiac resuscitation, trauma resuscitation, and pediatric resuscitation are well understood. They're essentially mnemonics that we use to help train and standardize the approach to things. And when we put this together and, and publish this in a way to kind of make it more useful for people in resuscitative medicine, you know, we figured out a standard approach to make this happen. So if we took the ABCDE model and essentially say, A, we asked the patient or surrogate to be clear about their intentions expressed in their advanced directive, whether it's a living will, DNR order, or in, in their pulse document. We, with B, we asked them to be clear if this is a terminal condition, regardless of the medical interventions, meaning do they have a persistent vegetative state? Is it a treatable critical illness? C, we want to communicate clearly if we feel the condition is reversible and treatable with good or a poor prognostic outcome. I think that's a really important step there to kind of make recommendations to patients and their families so that they can have an idea of what's to come next. The D in the checklist is essentially designing a care plan for the patient and discussing the next steps. For example, your mom's critically ill. You know, we could either give her a trial of life-sustaining treatment for 48 to 72 hours or not. If we do give her a trial, if we see there's no benefit for 48 to 72 hours, we can then start to talk about de-escalation of treatment and provide comfort and allow natural death. E is really explaining it's okay to withhold or withdraw the life-sustaining treatment and provide comfort so long as it's in keeping with the patient's perceived wishes. And really what's important is to taking a, that moment at that point in time to explain the benefits of both palliative care and hospice care because they have really good systems in place to actually help patients, especially when they're being discharged home or at our end, or at our end, end of life. Because most people in resuscitative medicine are moving on to the next patient to be resuscitated, whereas those groups have it embedded in their, their practice to essentially come back to the family and make sure all their needs are met. So, you know, to touch on some of these myths versus facts that I think we all deal with on a daily basis, I'll just ask you a few specific ones. The one I hear often is we do not have the original document. This is a photocopy of, say, uh, the living will or, or DNR order. Do you need the original document? No. And to clarify that, you don't. You don't need the original document. You could actually accept a copy. You could actually accept an image of it. The states vary as far as their their descriptions of what's allowed, but by and large, they, for the most part, those that do have advanced directive laws in place or pull statutes in place 
actually will accept an image of the copy or a copy of the original. So as far as DNR versus do not treat, can you clarify that to me as well? So I, I think one in one respect, this is a term. And what then happens is another spinoff term comes of it. So do not resuscitate order is essentially the order when you don't intervene on a patient when they're found with no pulse or not breathing. In other words, dead. Unfortunately, that term has been misunderstood in many fashions and has been um, misunderstood to define or to define do not treat type orders or scenarios where, again, in these situations, I think that's a misunderstanding and that maybe there's an issue of education in those particular areas where people have that misunderstanding. Uh, can you explain to me the difference between a critically ill patient and, say, true end-of-life care for somebody? So that's difficult because when, when you see people who are at end of life, they're often critically ill. Now, that's, that's a really important thing to clarify, though, because lots of critical illness has standard of care treatments to, prov to be provided that could essentially bring benefit to that particular patient. So take for the example of an MI patient who goes into cardiac arrest from a BFib. Now, technically, that guy's in cardiac arrest, right? So technically, he's dead. But you do have a known standard of care therapy that can deliver therapy to that patient and, and bring him back into a normal rhythm and proceed down with the care and treatment of the rest of his heart attack. And that patient will most likely go home alive if they happen to arrest in your, in your presence. Now, to the converse of that, when you look at the end-of-life care scenario, you know, you, we can often see people at various stages of end of life. We could see them where they have chronic illness and have chronic sta chronically stable vitals. Or essentially, we could see them in their chronic end of life phase, but now have become critically ill. And we really need to tease out that particular instance to see who we should be delivering care to. So can I be sued if I treat uh, when they uh, did not uh, necessarily want treatment or not treat when they did? So that's another interesting one because often you hear people say, I'm just going to provide care and treatment because I don't want to be sued and let someone else make that decision. So advanced directive laws often have immunity clauses built in for the physician for the whole purpose. If they withhold care and treatment, as long as they did it um, in a uh, non-malicious way and with the belief that they were acting appropriately with the appropriate documents in place, that they have immunity. Interestingly, though, we, we've seen cases of over-resuscitation come as far as a patient who had a living will and was treated. There was a couple publicized cases of that. And people technically did have to go through the whole process of, you know, hiring attorneys, you know, going to trial and so on. So it's interesting how it's all spanning out that there are immunities in place. However, people can be still sued from the process. No, I don't want that to deter people from thinking that, you know, they should treat everybody and and let chips fall down later on in, in the care team process so that they don't have to deal with it. I think this needs to come down to doing what you feel is most appropriate for the patient for their particular medical illness or critical illness and whether or not there's an issue of futility here and quality of life. If the person has no quality of life and the care is futile, I would say it would be a very, very unsuccessful suit for someone to come and say you didn't provide care for that particular patient when they were critically ill or dying. 
So do you feel like this is a, an area where uh, there can be a misunderstanding between what the patient's true wishes are and maybe just a push to control spending and use of resources? So there's always that question. And if you take a look at that Institute of Medicine report, again, right now we're spending about $170 billion a year looking at treating at end-of-life care situations or what they deem as end-of-life care. And it's projected to go to $350 billion in less than five years. So systems are laser focused on this. The corporate systems and the not-for-profit systems that have insurance products and so on are very laser focused on how to control the spending, how to, to appropriately spend the resources. Because right now their perception is, is that we're just overutilizing the resources. In addition to that, there's two schools of thought as far as how people act. There's a paternalistic view on this subject, and there's the patient-centered view on this subject. And sometimes the paternalistic view seems to feel that they would basically make the decision for you rather than you being involved in that decision-making process. And the patient-centered view is to give the patient a, a, um, uh, a chance at treatment, and then maybe when care and treatment is not beneficial, start pulling back. But I think there's definitely a problem where people have this concern about pulling back with respect to get aggressive care and treatment. And it is something that we need to become more comfortable with if there's no benefit. So do we just abandon these forms and, and come up with a new process? What's your solution to this problem? Oh, gosh, no. No, these forms are present. They're in existence. Living wills have, they, they have policies behind them and statutes behind them. I think we need to get better at them. I think we need to get better at defining who's the appropriate candidates for the form. You know, who should be doing the informed consents. We definitely need to look at the education because the education is confusing people out there that they seem to feel that they understand what they're doing, but we're start, still seeing error rates behind it. And we have to make standards. There, there has to be a standard set here. And that's one of the issues behind living wills and pulse documents is that there's no real standards in place as far as one document, one process to make sure everyone's familiar with it. Pulse documents, you can have it named something differently. It could be a different color. It could be a different formatting. And if you're in a tri-state area where you're, you're on bordering states, those minor changes can have big impacts as far as patient safety outcomes. And people don't seem to think that that's such a big, big deal, so to speak. But it is a very important thing. And standardization is a very powerful patient safety tool. And then we got to figure out a way to make it the standards again and enforce those standards. Because right now, this is a completely unregulated process. And states and institutions are able to do what they want to incentivize form completion. And I think we need to stick with specific indications. We for sure need to stick with indications of a pulse document versus a living will. And quite frankly, there's no specific indication for people to have a do not resuscitate order. There should be a requirement for an indication for a do not resuscitate order. And it could simply be patient choice and not a terminal condition. So Dr. Murphy, let me give you a specific case of something that we would often see in the emergency department. Let's say you have a 65-year-old male who comes in with chest pain, and he's a relatively healthy gentleman, uh, but he does have an advanced directive, um, and it says he really uh, declines all treatments. But it goes into V-fib cardiac arrest in front of you. What would you do? So that, that's a very interesting scenario, and that's one of the most common cases we utilize in our triad series of research. So I could say, one, the issue of informed consent comes up there for me. Because when a patient goes see, to see an attorney to have their living will crafted or their advanced directive crafted, 
they're often advised and they provide consent to that a physician will essentially not utilize that document until it's a point where they feel the condition is terminal despite sound medical treatment. Okay, so to me, this 65-year-old person who comes in with an MI and goes into a V-fib cardiac arrest in front of me, I could bet dollars to donuts that that patient would accept treatment in the form of defibrillation and to continue on with the process of treating their heart attack if they felt that there was a good prognostic outcome. And you know as well as I do, with the way advances in medicine have come and the ability to defibrillate immediately and get someone to the cath lab and open up their artery, people walk home from the hospital with almost no significant deterrence in their quality of outcome or their quality of life. So for me in that particular patient, that 65-year-old who comes in in cardiac arrest from an MI, I'm treating that patient if they have an advanced directive until the point I feel their resuscitation has gone to the level where I feel the patient would essentially not want to be resuscitated anymore. So give me some final thoughts uh, about this, uh, this whole scenario that uh, is obviously confusing to, to most people. So one, I think people need to realize again that this is a patient safety risk. And it's a national patient safety risk because there's very little difference in the practice of emergency medicine or medicine in general when it comes to the treatment of these particular illnesses as far as critical illness. You either stabilize and treat or you don't stabilize and treat. And sometimes you have something in between. You know, what we need everyone to know is that there's an issue with the accuracy of DNO orders and even pulse documents to, to be quite frank at this point in time. We need to make sure that people, when they see these documents or orders, start to question these documents or orders for appropriateness. Utilize the patient safety checklist to essentially take the 30 seconds to ask a couple of questions, individualize the care, and determine any treatment goals. The other thing we really need to do is to make sure people are aware that living wills are not the same as do not resuscitate orders. Living wills are not the same as pulse documents. Pulse documents are not advanced directives, they're medical orders, and they're immediately actionable. That's the other thing we really want to make sure people are aware of. Living wills need to be triggered before you follow them. Pulse documents you're supposed to follow right from the get-go. But again, I'm trying to reemphasize here that we should still question those documents for appropriateness and talk to patients and their families to make sure that we're doing what's right for that particular patient. The last couple of things we really want people to know is that do not resuscitate orders are not do not treat orders. Do not resuscitate orders are for a patient who's found in cardiac arrest. It's not supposed to, it, to influence the care and treatment of a critically ill patient other than to prompt a discussion to set some goals for that particular critically ill patient. Lastly, again, I really want to just emphasize that we should be utilizing checklists. We should be looking at things from a perspective of medical errors because we have an issue on both sides of the coin here as far as over-resuscitation and under-resuscitation. Over-resuscitation utilizes resources and is expensive and could be against the patient wishes. Under-resuscitation is essentially against the patient wishes and causes harm to patients. So we really have to figure out standards, regulation, education, and, and basically try and make an impact so that we can make the impact in a necessary way to control that $350 billion projected in healthcare spending. Dr. Murphy, thank you for clarifying some of these uh, important questions that we all have regarding these documents. Dr. Camerata, thank you and thank you to AEM. 
We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next episode. The AAEM Operations Management Committee will discuss another topic of importance for emergency physicians. Thank you.